Welcome back to Miskatonic University's Remote Education Program. Uh, this is Graphical Literature in Society and History, otherwise known as the Comics Course. As always, I am Professor Hamby, here with my loyal-ish T.A. Rowan. Say hello, Rowan. I don't know what loyal-ish means, but hello. Well, you're getting your financial aid, right? I would hope so. So, um, I'm a little out of it. Uh, Rowan apparently was so concerned with diligently making sure she was here to, you know, be here for the course for you, our students, that she took a nap instead. And when she finally woke up, she came over here to the office and banged on the door, and it took a while, because I was asleep. So, we have both just woken up, and we're here to teach the ignorant masses. Or at least the ignorant masses who have cut a check to the bursar's office here at Miskatonic University. Yeah. Um, I was given a list of things by the department head, Dr. Feckett, to share, and I've lost it. So, I'm sure there was nothing timely or important about it. That can't wait till next week, our next class session. So, instead, we're going to drop into a multi-class program right away of the publication history of the Black Panther. And why are we doing Black Panther? Well, we're not doing Black Panther simply because he's one of my favorite characters. We are doing Black Panther because he is, in a sense, an iconoclast. Now, an iconoclast may be a surprising term for some people, because you'd say, well, what's an iconoclast is somebody that destroys traditional structures, you know, somebody that bucks the trend, and he is one of the major icons of Marvel, and he is now, but he hasn't always been, and I would argue that much of his success is almost in spite of how he's been written and presented over the years. Um, I think he has a fascinating history that in some ways is a look at society itself, uh, especially American society, uh, from the 1960s to present. And I think reactions span the gamut. So we're going to run a number of episodes uh, uh, of this pod class where we start today with the origin of Black Panther in the 1960s where we are going to cover his first appearance in the Fantastic Four, then his reintroduction in Tales of Suspense with Captain America, then his presence in the Avengers. And that's going to take us up to what I think is his first truly important role, which is in Don McGregor's uh, taking over of Jungle Comics. That is going to be its own class or two, and we'll just take it from there, going all the way up to contemporary time and the first Black Panther movie. We know there's going to be another one, and we're going to talk about how the movie differs from the comics and how I think Marvel and Disney really missed the beat in some ways, and they did something they, they did something good in the movie, but I think they missed the mark in a number of places. Oh, yeah. So anyway, and I don't say that merely as a Black Panther fan. So we're going to start off, and I'm going to provide uh, sources to the Marvel Masterworks I mentioned here. I'm using these as our visual reference today because they have nice brightened colors and nice restored pages. Unfortunately, to my knowledge, there is no Marvel Masterworks for the Tales of Suspense I'm going to follow. So I'm just using individual issues for those. But I mention that in part not only because they are going to be in the show notes and you can use those Amazon referral links to support the Miskatonic program for underpaid assistant professors, um, which has as its beneficiary me, but uh, I am showing Rowan, I'm starting off actually with the episode or issue before the one of Black Panther's first appearance in the Fantastic Four, issue number 51. Now, one of the things about Jack Kirby's art 
is that by the mid-60s, he was experimenting. Fantastic Four was in some ways the Jack Kirby and Stan Lee title. It, Fantastic Four number one launched the Marvel era. It defined Marvel in many ways. And it is a title in which we can see Jack Kirby's experimentation. You know, it it is not difficult to understand how he became so iconic for things like these black and red energy effects. And you can trace those all the way back to the beginning. But he began experimenting with things like collage effects. So what do you think of this, Rowan, as a, a visual person? We have Reed Richards, who's floating in space, surrounded by these planets. And instead of simply drawing them, he decided to use photographs as reference points and immerse his drawn figure of Reed Richards into this collage effect, making it kind of trippy. Now, Kirby has always been out there. But he never embraced the sheer psychedelia of some artists. But he, but that didn't mean that he didn't want to create new visual means of communicating sort of sense of wonder and expansive cosmos. So what do you think? I like it. Definitely very trippy. It is trippy. But I like it. I like all the bright colors and the shapes and mm -hmm. stuff. And this is issue 51, which is an interesting issue. Uh, Reed Richards is in what he calls the Crossroads of Infinity. It is an issue that has a fairly major plot point with a villain that takes the appearance of Ben Grimm and then sacrifices himself to save Reed Richards. A character that, surprisingly, to my knowledge, does not reappear anywhere else in the history of Marvel. While these early issues of, you know, Fantastic Four were heavily mined, with even minor characters often reappearing repeatedly later. Poor villain. I just, know. Just left to the sidelines to never be remembered. Although kind of redeemed as a hero at the end. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, Fantastic Four number 52. Uh, this was cover dated July, released in 1966, and it says, Introducing the sensational Black Panther. Black Panther had a cape? Yes. Kind of looks like Batman. Well, and that may have been a partial inspiration, although he didn't really have the utility belt or that stuff. The Black Panther, as he's presented here on the cover, shows this dark figure really more black than anything else, uh, silhouetted against a bright light in the background, and you have these dark grays and blues that sort of highlight the figure, and these just eyes. And it says, introducing the sensational Black Panther. Kind of looks scary. It is. Yeah, absolutely. The anatomy on the hands isn't quite perfect. Um, it's but it's very evocative. It's a striking mm -hmm. figure. Um, and you can see some of why Kirby was such a figure in his time. I, I, I don't think much of the Human Torch figure here, but look at the bent-over figures of the other three members of the Fantastic Four. That look of apprehension on the Thing's face, the studiousness of Reed Richards, the intensity of Sue Storm. I mean, he was good at communicating emotion in the characters. Mm -hmm. Now, in this issue, what we have is a fairly straightforward storyline in this issue wherein we are introduced to Reed Richards flying around in a fantastic vehicle. Now, normally, this would mean Reed Richards had invented a new gadget. But instead, we're immediately... The Thing acts as our voice and says, Hey, where did this thing come from? And Reed Richards says, It was an unexpected gift sent to me by an African chieftain called... The, the Black, Black Panther. Panther. And... He and Reed Richards is confused by this ship. He he can't even figure out exactly how it's powered. It says it seems to be some sort of magnetic waves, and it's these controls are so simple, it's like operating a phone. So they land, and there's a fellow there. Um, and by the way, there, there have been cases of some dubious racial representation in comics where people said, Oh, well, our colors are too crude. And we can't represent black people with the color palettes we have. Now, I admit, truly black skin is difficult to do, especially in older comics. 
because of the limited palette. Um, but the option the colorers took back here, back in the mid-1960s with Fantastic Four, where they use a dark gray palette to represent these Africans, uh, makes it, while not a literally accurate color palette for black skin, but frankly, neither are the pales used for white people's skin, makes it very clear they're African. Mm -hmm. and, and, and represents that they are dark um, without being insulting. You can, you know, he's got these just wonderful uh, uh, broad facial features. He's a handsome man, frankly. Mm -hmm. And clearly that it could be done. Jack Kirby was doing it in 1966 very easily. Um, mm -hmm. So I don't think there's any excuse by the 80s for them not to have been able to do it. Mm -hmm. So... This fellow, who we aren't given their, his name, but he says, The Skycraft is yours to keep, Mr. Richards, if you accept my chieftain's invitation. Now note, there, there's no pigeon speech. There's no representation of, you know, that it... it, it there's no regionalization or localization to imply that he can't speak proper English. He's speaking proper English. Mm -hmm. He's not an ignorant native of some place. Uh, and this is important in setting the tone. So he uses a device then, because Reed Richards accepts the invitation to communicate with the Black Panther. And Reed Richards is confused by this tiny device and how can it communicate all the way across the world. And the guy says, it communicates by cosmic wave channels which blanket all the Earth. Um, and he seems to say it's perfectly normal. He says, I shall contact my chieftain in Wakanda. So Wakanda is introduced from the very first. And I want you to remember Wakanda. Because just in the next panel, the letterer has instead written an area wherein lies a buried mystery. Well, I, let me back up and read the whole panel to you. Instantly, a powerful sound beam reaches a pre-designated area deep in the heart of equatorial Africa. This is something else we'll talk about later. He says, Equatorial Africa. Don't worry, that will change. Yes. The location of Wakanda is, moves around about as much as a politician's heart. It just kind of slides around in a slithery way inside the bordering body. That implies they have a heart. Well, they do. It's just very tiny and it slides between the other organs because it's not connected to anything. Ah. Um, and Wakanda seems to do the same thing um, geographically in Africa. Mm -hmm. So, an area wherein lies a buried mystery, a mystery known only to those of the Wakandas, and who speak the name of the Black Panther in hushed, fearful whispers. So we went from in Wakanda to the Wakandas. This continues to be a point of confusion for a long time. Um... We now move forward. We see the Black Panther. He's received news. He's sitting around in ceremonial gear. We have some imagery which will persist for a long time, but we have a lot of natives who are very wearing very, for lack of a better term, African native garb. Uh, I'm, I severely doubt there was any study of African cultures or anything, but, you know... The men are bare-chested, they're wearing simple jungle garments, but some people are carrying, like, machine guns and ray weapons. This is the beginning of something that we will see much further in the future of Black Panther, which is this juxtaposition of old tribal ways and technology, except here it is slanted very heavily towards the old tribal, for reasons we'll talk about soon, whereas in the future we'll see it become more half-and-half. Mm -hmm. um, so the Black Panther says, raise the totem, let the ritual begin. And we see this large Black Panther st statue raised up out of the ground. Um, and then he s opens it up to find this technology and remove his stalking costume. It will later be referred to as ceremonial garb. But we have from the very beginning that his costume is one of a ceremonial nature. And this statue imagery that is the Black Panther begins right here. Really, in these two issues, Fantastic Four, number 52 and 53, we have the beginnings of much of what is iconic about the Black Panther 
all the way back here from Stan Lee and uh, uh, Jack Kirby's original story. Now, I want to stop right here as a breaking point and talk a little bit about that origin. Because we have here Wakanda, African Chieftain, Technologies, Ceremonial Garb, the name of the Black Panther, and much more that we will talk about uh, before we finish with Fantastic Four number 53. All of this was so iconic that it burned in people's minds and did not change. It became Black Panther immediately. Now, if you say, oh, well, anything in a character's introduction is going to be iconic. No, that is not true. Many characters lose original mm -hmm. parts of their creation as they fall away from people's minds. Um, now let's talk about the circumstance. Now, this is 1966. To imagine the world of 1966, it's the Cold War. Uh, John F. Kennedy was assassinated several years before. The Berlin Wall is being built. Uh, Congo is one of the countries that has a lot of turmoil. The U.S. is heavily involved in the politics of Congo. And the Soviet Union is fighting the U.S. in uh, Cold War there, as they are in many other parts of the world, including other places in Africa, Middle East, other third world countries. Um, Africa is in the midst of discussing creating a NATO-like organization to represent their interests. So there's a lot going on in the world with the Cold War. The Beatles are the biggest group in the world. In fact, they released Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band just a year later in 1967. They were around during the Cold War? Yes. Okay. Yeah, you might want to take a history class or two. Just saying. Okay. Um, maybe one of my professors over in the history department will do, or music department, will do a music in history and culture class. Um, okay. But yes, this is the world that all this is happening in. Uh, Africa is involved in a variety of colonial shifts. Many of the old colonial countries either have or will in the next few decades uh, leave their colonial origins behind and become their own sovereign states. So while I wouldn't say that what's happening in Africa is central in the minds of people around the world, it is something that people concerned with global issues are aware of. And one of those fellows was Jack Kirby. Now, uh, my understanding is the character of the Black Panther was originally intended for another project, but something happened and it was pushed off. Um, I don't remember the details off the top of my head. And, but he was envisioned as a character called the Coal Tiger, with a more of an acrobat-inclined outfit. Uh, I don't have an image of it here to share with you right now, Rowan. Now, the name Cold Tiger was later reused. In fact, in one of the stories set in the future, uh, T'Challa's son is shown as a character called the Cold Tiger. Specifically, I should be clear, a uh, T'Challa's son from one of the multiverse worlds, not the core Marvel world of 616. The that's the name of the core world. It's number. They're all given numbers. It's a six one six. They're all given numbers. Mm hmm. Do people remember these? Yes. Some do. I personally don't tend to memorize them. Uh, many people refer to them by their icon, some iconic status of them. You know, for example, uh. The, there's a, the spider, what I call the Spider-Ham universe. If, for those who've seen the Marvel movie Into the Spider-Verse, uh, there is one universe where there are cartoon animal versions of the Marvel superheroes. Uh, and it's not just Spider-Ham. There's, you know, I forget what the animals are, but there's cartoon versions of Captain America. I believe that's a cat. Uh, Thor, Iron Man, all those things. Um, I tend to call it the Spider-Ham universe. Uh, because it was introduced in a comic book series aimed at kids in the early 1980s called the Spe Peter Porker, the Spectacular Spider-Ham. Oh, um, so he's the iconic element of that. So. And just an easy reference point. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the Ultimates universe is often just called the Ultimates universe and so on. But they, in fact, all have numbers. Uh, and, in fact, there's some debate about why 616 was picked as the number of the Prime Marvel Universe. Um, some people believe that it, 
there it's attributed to different people at different times some people believe it has a purpose in mysticism back in the 70s there were a lot of marvel writers really interested in mysticism of different kinds from kabbalah to every druidism all kinds of other stuff was it announced by marvel that that was the main universe or the fans just kind of pick it it, it was written into official Marvel comics. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, and it is considered... And, and basically, whenever something happens that violates continuity, oh, that story was probably in one of the alternate universes. Oops. Anyway, we're getting off course. Okay. But that's okay. That's okay. So, the Black Panther... Uh, there is a question. Who created him? Jack Kirby or... Um, Stanley. Now, the story that I've heard is that there originally was another project, an issue, something, where Stanley went to Jack Kirby and said, We need a new hero character. And Jack Kirby came up with Cold Tiger and they kind of shelved it. They said, eh, Okay, that doesn't quite work for this. But, you know, but then they needed a couple issues of Fantastic Four and they decided to use the character here. But they revamped the costume to make it sleeker and call him the Black Panther. Now, you could there's an argument that the character is co-created by Stanley and Jack Kirby, and I don't want to dismiss the fact that Stanley, I'm sure, had creative input, helped create him. Maybe he picked the name. I don't know. Um, maybe asked for redesigns of the outfit. But Jack Kirby generally refers to the Black Panther as his character. And that he created it. Well, that he did. I mean, obviously, Jack Kirby's passed away now. And he specifically says his motivation was very simple. He said that he had African-American friends, or he referred to them as black friends. The nomenclature of what's acceptable to say over time has changed. And he said, but we didn't have any black superheroes. And he said he felt he should change that. Mm-hmm. He said he knew there were black kids that read the comics and there weren't black superheroes. You should make black superhero. It had nothing to do with sales. It had nobody coming to him saying we need to improve market segments. There weren't outraged, you know, protests. He just personally wanted to do it. Um, which I think is kind of great. Mm-hmm. And Jack Kirby created this idea of the Black Panther. And I think that most of what we see of the Black Panther here is, in fact, the invention of Jack Kirby. I don't think Stan Lee had a major part in it. So, when the... uh, Another thing I need to address very quickly is the Black Panther political party. As many people know, uh, in Oakland, California, around 1965, a political party was formed in Oakland, California. It soon gained the popular name of the Black Panther Party. That was not its official operating name. Stan Lee often dismissed the idea that there was any relationship. He wanted to keep the comics away from politics. Uh, Stan Lee was very much somebody who always tried to walk the middle of the road, although often did a very poor job of it. I mean, we, we, we can come up with a lot of criticisms of Stan Lee, uh, from introducing female characters as all nurses and secretaries. I mean, Stan Lee never made a strong female character in his books. People who say, oh, well, what about, you know, uh, uh, Sue Storm when she did blank, blank, blank. Those were, la- those were other writers later using his characters, not him. Um, and he did not like controversy associated with the books. And when asked about it as late as, you know, just a few years before he passed away, he said, oh, we didn't really know what was going on. Oh, it was a total coincidence. But writers like Sean Howe have said that there was direct knowledge and articles in The New Yorker read by Jack Kirby and Stan Lee where they directly borrowed the name of the Black Panther Party for the character. So, if that's true, there is a political tie immediately. And the simple fact is, we are live, we're talking about a time period where in Star Trek... Um, Many stations in the South, and, may, and probably some other parts of the country, would not air the episode where Kirk and O'Hara kissed. The fact is, the introduction uh, in Marvel Comics, which was insanely popular and doing very, very well at the time, of a black superhero is an inherently political statement. Mm-hmm. 
So, now, it also is a statement of social diversity, and Stan was always kind of a middle-of-the-road leftist, so he probably, even if it was from Jack Kirby, I don't think Stan objected too much, so long as nothing overtly political came out in the book. Mm. Um, so, I think that's where we stood with the creation of the Black Panther. Now, the continuation of issue 51, where Black Panther is introduced, we see where he basically ambushes the Fantastic Four, and we find out that it's essentially so that he can test himself against them. And it's a grand hunt. And he doesn't do anything to hurt them, but to immobilize them, stop them. And he's eventually defeated. But we see them take we see him take them on this trip through this technology jungle. And it's really a chance for Jack Kirby to draw all the weird, funky alien tech that he loves so much. Um and he does a great job. And the Black Panther is clearly shown to be an acrobatic character. He, We are not introduced to the idea of him having an outfit with vibranium in it and the outfit granting him any special powers. That's later? That That's much later. That's not introduced really in the comics for a very long time that his outfit has any special abilities. But he is asked by the thing in these issues, where do your abilities that you have come from? You can see in the dark. You seem to have, have other enhanced senses. You're incredibly strong. And he says, there are certain rare herbs I ingest. Now, it's not tied to the mythology of the flowers and the chieftain's role yet, but that idea of an herbal ingesture that puts him at peak superhuman abilities with maybe a few superhuman abilities, like his night vision, is established again immediately in this origin. And then they say, okay, well, what brought you to all this? Tell us your backstory. And he says, I am, as you see me, hereditary chieftain of the Wakandas. There we go, of the Wakandas again. And perhaps the richest man in all the world. But it was not always so. My tale is one of tragedy and deadly revenge. Now, one way you can think of the Wakandas, and if you go back and read the history of the Black Panther, I suggest you do this, is that... Wakanda has two meanings, a place and a people. So when they say of the Wakandas, and this inconsistency drives me nuts, so I've had to establish this lore in my head, that what they mean is of the Wakandan people, the Wakandas being tribes. Of the Wakanda tribes. And saying of the Wakandas is shorthand for Wakanda tribes. Plural. And they, however... There is no lore in these early appearances of distinct tribes in Wakanda. That does come later with the Don McGregor writing. But that split between Wakanda and Wakanda's an inconsistent representation just keeps going and going. So the next issue, number 53, Fantastic Four. We now see the Fantastic Four and Wyatt Wingfoot, whose role I didn't go over, but... He played a pivotal role in helping the Fantastic Four last issue, or T'Challa would have whooped their ass like disobedient children, as he should. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is funny that now, I think in many, in the minds of the general public, Black Panther is a much bigger figure than the Fantastic Four are. But that certainly wasn't true back then, um, or for a very long time. That's really not until the Black Panther movie came out. So they are sitting on a sort of stage with the Black Panther. He's on a sort of panther-shaped throne. There's ritual dancing happening. Uh, the Fred, the, <laughs> the Fred, the thing uh, provides this commentary as we go throughout this issue, kind of playing the skeptical reader. Uh, he's watching the dancers and going, sheesh, a bunch of Fred Astaire's they ain't. Um, and... Then we're led back into this modern 60s hip sort of apartment. Uh, there's a modern stereo, there's modern lighting, but we have rugs with this African motif. There's a, a torch burning, again, with these sort of pseudo-African tribal motifs. And we have this blend of African tribal and super modern that becomes very common 
and later appearances. Okay, sorry about that. Uh, we had to take a quick breather. Turned out one of the hounds had gotten somebody in the quad again. Some education major. I think her name was Shelly. Didn't like her anyways. I, You know, really, in this day and age, who wears a bouffant hairdo? Really? That kind of hipster. Okay. Too. Yeah, well, that explains it. Uh, hope, hopefully the hound uh, had a new taste before it was popular. Yeah. So... The Black Panther, T'Challa, is going to share about how he came to be and how this new technology of Wakanda came to be. And it's going to be a very different origin of Wakanda than what people are used to seeing in the movies and things like that. Um, specifically, he's going to talk about what happened with his father, T'Chaka. Now, this is not a major difference but there are some background differences that are very important. Now, while he's doing this, there's a parallel storyline that's happening with these giant red animal monsters that are ambushing patrols in the jungle and all that. We'll come back to that. But T'Challa is taking a spear and shield that we're led to believe uh, are either ceremonial or maybe belong to his father. And he's saying, my father was the greatest, wisest chieftain in all of Africa. And his skill as a hunter was second to none. And Ben Grimm goes, oh, I can't help it. I've seen this in a million jungle movies. <laughs> um, so T'Challa turns and says, I'm boring you, am I? Suppose I tell you you're sitting on $20 million. And they all jump up. What do you mean, this marble, marble bench? Uh, 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 marble's not worth that much. And Sue says, look closely, that isn't marble. And Reed Richards, being the brilliant genius that he is, you're right, Sue, there's some sort of glistening metallic orb by Jove. I added the by Jove, it sounded better. <laughs> um, now, this was 1966, the conversion rate from 1966 to now is about a dollar to nine dollars and change. So we're talking about around 186 million dollars. A bench being worth $186 million. He's going to learn where to spend his money better. Well, and that's... Well, but he didn't say he bought it for $186 million. He says it's worth $186 million oh, yeah. Because that strange ore is vibranium. This is the first introduction of, of vibranium in the Marvel Universe. The sole source on Earth. Now... The truth is, building a whole giant seating thing of vibranium is ridiculous. I don't think they would have done it, but it was a funny, dramatic way to introduce it in the stories as to why Wakanda is rich and why it's of so much interest to the outside world and why it has stayed hidden. Um, so, basically, T'Challa goes on to explain that they've bought this technology. And over the next few pages, what we see is a history where Ulysses S. Claw, the uh, uh, scumbag that he is, came into Wakanda, shot up the natives, tried to steal the technology, but T'Challa stole uh, from one of his men when he dropped it this sonic gun that he used to get rid of the invaders and blew off and destroyed Claw's hand. Uh, obviously, all this happened very differently in the Marvel movies, at least in terms of losing the hand and this and that. Um, so here's some critical points, though. Claw comes in with machine guns and destroys the natives. Why? Because Wakanda, here up until the 1950s, is completely primitive. No technology. None. They've remained hidden... They supposedly know vibranium's really valuable, but they don't even have vibranium spears or anything. That doesn't make sense. It really doesn't. Um, I mean, why would they remain hidden if they don't understand what they have is so valuable? And so why would they buy the technology and then do nothing with it? Well, they have. I mean, T'Challa has now bought the technology. They now have flying things. They have. We saw, as he's fighting the Fantastic Four, he has guards armed with ray guns that 
do stuff to people okay. and have all kinds of effects. They obviously have. They now have this technology, but they have not developed it themselves. They've bought it. So they've never learned from it, just have used it. Well, I, I mean, you say they've never learned from it. I mean, you make it sound like they've had it for generations and been lazy. I mean, they've had it for a few years. You don't take a tribal people that don't have a codified system of science, hand them a bunch of technology, and they're able to duplicate it five years later. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, but they've just bought it. So here's this interesting thing where um, they're not trying to create a mythology of Wakanda. I mean, they have tried to express Wakanda as a new place. It's hidden from the outside world. That's why we don't already know about it. But they're not creating an elaborate mythology about Wakanda being El Dorado, as it's referred to in the Marvel movies, when uh, Ulysses Claw is being interrogated by the CIA. Instead, it's just a undiscovered African nation that's had this vibranium mound. The mound is also introduced. Uh, which quickly becomes an iconic part of Wakanda. And T'Challa is able to use its wealth to purchase technology and build this hybrid society of tribal African culture and super new technology. But Kirby was not creating this deep mythology for Wakanda. And this is one of the things that becomes interesting, of course, is that as we move forward... Certainly post Don McGregor, certainly post Christopher Priest, Todd Nahisi Coates, Wakanda becomes as much of a character in the books as the Black Panther does. I mean, how many people out there love the phrase Wakanda forever? Lots. It's quoted regularly. Right. And it's become a statement of black pride itself in a way. Mm -hmm. And when non-blacks use it, it's almost a statement of solidarity with black interests. Mm -hmm. And we saw both those manifestations in the Black Lives Matter protests. Mm -hmm. um, so here we see the origin of Wakanda. And while some surface elements become iconic, its history gets gutted and replaced in later writing. To become essentially a superhero culture in its own right. Now, I find this fascinating because I think one of the things they were trying to do is stick with a certain kind of realism. You know, this idea that Africa uh, was this place that didn't have these advanced societies. But in fact, the truth is, and, and this goes back to an old idea in our culture, that societies continually advance, but they don't regress. But that's not true. And Africa has been home to very advanced cultures in history. Mm -hmm. In fact, Timbuktu, uh, in its time, had some of the best libraries in the world. Uh, in fact, there's a great book out there, if anyone's interested in reading it, called uh, The Librarians of Timbuktu, about efforts to recollect some of these books where they've been scattered across Africa. Of course, many have been lost and destroyed as well. Anyway, so... Black Panther, highly iconic, highly established here. Minor tweaks in his character going forward, really. Uh, Wakanda, superficially created, but lots of tweaks to come. Now, we get from T'Challa some information about Claw. You know, he blew off his hand, all that. While this is happening, we find out that Claw is actually invading Wakanda right now. Of course, because you're not going to have backstory without immediate fulfillment for it. Mm -hmm. And during all this, uh, the Fantastic Four listen to the story. They, of course, become sympathetic. When they find out Claw's invading right now, they rush out to help. Uh, and in a great twist, normally in these sorts of stories... Now, I'm going to back up a little bit. The Thing kept saying, oh yeah, I've heard this before. Oh yeah, whatever. Uh, some of the Black Panther story paralleled the stories that uh, the thing was referencing, you know, but some of it bucked it. And here at the end, we get a complete rejection of the white man in Africa tropes. Now, for those who don't know the white man in Africa tropes, imagine Tarzan. So you have a whole continent of people, all kinds of things happen, 
But no black man grows up to be the Lord of the Apes in Africa. No, an English lord who's lost as a baby in Africa is, of course, the one that grows up to be the Lord of the Apes. Or the Khazar, or the Lonar. Or, I mean, we can go through a long list of these characters. Who becomes the Lord of the Jungle? The white guy, who's transplanted there from somewhere else. Because, of course, white people are inherently superior to the black people and will be their lords. I mean, that is the message of that trope, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, even a character I like, the Phantom, falls victim to some of that. Mm -hmm. um, and here at the end, if we were following that trope format, the Fantastic Four would have to save the Black Panther. In fact, the Fantastic Four do help. They occupy uh, Claw's minions. But it's the Black Panther that sneaks into Claw's sanctum, faces Claw, and destroys the base and destroys the machinery. The Black Panther, the prince, the king of Wakanda, is the one who protects Wakanda. And the Fantastic Four are his assistants. Mm -hmm. It's actually pretty well done. Mm -hmm. Now, at the end, Claw is believed dead. He actually goes through this portal. And we're teased that we will one day see him again. Uh, which, of course, we do later. He's converted to pure sound energy. But here from the Fantastic Four, he's dropped from the story. And he doesn't show up again. But he does show up a year later in 1967 in Tales of Suspense. Now, as we talked about when we talked about the Mandarin, Tales of Suspense became a, a title where half of it would be Captain America and half would be Iron Man. And in the Captain America portion, we see the Black Panther reintroduced. Now, we don't see him until the very end of 97. 97 is wrapping up other storylines. But towards the end of 97, we see the Black Panther, who's bandaged up in bed, communicating via essentially what we would now call video conferencing, but back then was super fantasy, with Captain America in an airship that he sent for him, much like he did the Fantastic Four. Now, a coloring choice here that I'm fond of is that they moved away from those dark grays to this sort of dark brown to show the skin tone of the Africans. And I think it's a really good choice that really works. Uh, I like it. And we see this motif of the tribal and science fiction of Wakanda continued. And I'm going to note that in, his out, in the Black Panther's outfit in Fantastic Four and here, he has a full face mask. That becomes relevant in different representations. Now, moving into Tales of Suspense number 98... Of course, they love teasing Captain America versus Black Panther on the cover. Um, this is again written by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. Obviously, here we are just a year later, and already, you know, Jack Kirby uh, and Stan Lee have made an effort to reintroduce. Not even a year later, because 97 was like January of 67, and Fantastic Four 52 was, I think, August. So really, they've just waited a few months to reintroduce the Black Panther. They liked the character. But the ship that Captain America is flying crashes. The Black Panther attacks. And it's not really confusion. It turns out the Black Panther is kind of testing him to make sure it's not a doppelganger of some kind. A spy just dressed up as Captain America. Uh, because nobody other than Captain America would really be able to take on the Black Panther like this. Oh god, the hounds have somebody again. Hold on, folks. All right, Rowan is back, so anybody will miss this time? No. What? Man. <laughs> Somebody's really got them worked up. Have the bakery science students uh, not read the memo about not carrying meat pies across the quad anymore? Nope, but they got the dumbest one today. Oh, God. Okay. So, uh, the Black Panther, Captain America, they fight... It's pretty much implied here that whatever herbs the Black Panther is using enhances physical ability to be on par with Captain America. Sort of a tribal equivalent to the Super Soldier Serum. Um, although it's not explained why they don't have a whole bunch of people like him. That is explained in later Black Panther lore that's established. So the writers here do the sort of shtick that they find very creative where they sit, where Captain America says, Hey, why don't you tell me who the big bad here is? 
And Black Panther just says, you wouldn't believe me if I told you. You'll have to see for yourself. Which is which is obviously this really just cheesy shtick to surprise the readers with it. Um, and at the end, it's a character, that Baron Zemo, that Captain America believed to be dead. You know, look, ca- character, the only medium in which dead characters come back to life more often than comics is daytime soap operas. But I do want to point out in this episode, this issue of Tales of Suspense, number uh, 98, some of Jack Kirby's just wonderful facial art and head art. I mean, this is what made Jack Kirby the king. Just amazing stuff. Such clean lines, such expressions. And there's nothing in here that's really terribly interesting, except what we find as we go from issue 98 to 99, and then issue 100. Now, this confuses some people, but Tales of Suspense, as of 99, was the last Tales of Suspense. They decided to give Captain America his own title, which is the first time he's had his own title since, well, really, World War II era. Wow. Um, He's shared it with other people. And so they decided to rename Tales of Suspense Captain America. And instead of relaunching it, continuing numbers are better back then, which is not true these days. You know, back in the 60s and 70s, if they wanted to relaunch a title... It was like, well, we're not going to, you know, call it Captain America number one. We'll just take Tales of Suspense 100 and make it Captain America 100. These days, because of the popular belief, and it's largely backed by actual numbers, that number one issues sell more, they do not hesitate to relaunch number ones. I have seen titles that have been relaunched three times in one calendar year. <laughs> um, it, it's insane. So it says, big premiere issue, we see Captain America, T'Challa, and again, we see the Black Panther now without a cape, Ooh. Uh, largely defined as a sort of black mass with just the eyes. And the issue proceeds in a fairly simple, traditional comic book way, Captain America and Black Panther fight to stop uh, the bad guys, and here at the end is the part that is important. Captain America says to Black Panther, basically, I've left the Avengers for now. I'm no longer on the active duty roster. There's a space open. I hope you'll fill it. I hope you'll take my spot in the Avengers. And T'Challa agrees to do that. Now, this is interesting on a couple levels because it in a way is a passing of the torch from, you know, this role in the Avengers of the sort of intellectual figure, the leadership figure, presumably being Captain America to being the Black Panther. And Captain America is very much a symbol. So is the Black Panther. They both hold these symbolic roles to people. Now, this wasn't quite true at this point. And unfortunately, I don't think that in the Avengers, the Black Panther ever really accomplished what... Stan Lee and Jack Kirby uh, may have kind of hoped he would. Now, he was reintroduced in the Avengers in issue number 52, which was just following up immediately after, so we're talking about 1967, with the Grim Reaper. Now, this was written by Roy Thomas. Roy Thomas uh, was a longtime Marvel writer, and Roy Thomas loved the history of comics. In fact, many of his creations were either recastings, recreations, reinventions, somehow related to existing Marvel characters. I'm not sure he really knew what to do with the Black Panther. I think the Black Panther was intended to not be the symbol of freedom like Captain America is, but a symbol of some kind. Now, he later became that under other writers. Under Christopher Priest, he became a symbol of blackness. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, under Don McGregor, he became a symbol of black people. And there's a difference between those two things. Mm-hmm. Um, under Roy Thomas, he became a guy in a suit. What did they do to his mask? Yes, yeah, so we're looking at the first page of 52, Death Calls for the Arch Heroes. And we see... Now, the art here... Um, 
the art was John Buscema. I, 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 look at that back leg. It, no, nobody walks like that. It it looks like it's red doll physics. It, it looks like he's trying to do some sort of weird yoga on the side of a building. His oh, leg looks broken. He, he's climbed over the side of the building, and he's trying to do half downward dog with one a... leg over the side of a building. It's weird. Um, and, you know, people have made fun of Spider-Man art for having weird postures, but... Look at this. Yeah. And, and you're right. His ma- Something's happened to half his mask. He's I don't know if he got ketchup on it and decided to, you know, cut it off or what. But it's like they went, we need people to know he's black. Now, we could take his mask off and have him have meaningful scenes talking to people. Oh, fuck that. Let's just cut half the mask off. It doesn't even look like it's that's, it's supposed to be part of the costume. It really does look like he just took a scissors to half his mask. Right. You know, like, I have every other square centimeter of my body covered, but this would just be too much. <laughs> Woo! Um, which, you know, you'd, you'd think he was a white man in the pandemic. Oh! <laughs> so, a- as the story progressed, he didn't take any special role in the Avengers. He was this great chieftain, and he just kind of became a fill-in hero. Um, it, it was, I think... If anybody had been hoping to see the Black Panther take a special role, they were disappointed. And even Roy Thomas had to have been thinking about this, because by later issues that the Black Panther appeared in, uh, he began questioning things like, would I, you know, this is uh, from issue 59, cover dated in December, and this by this time the Yellow Jacket storyline that's well known was going on full force. And T'Challa is thinking, I can't help wondering if my greater destiny is as an Avenger or as Prince of the Proud Wakanda. And then they show him in ceremonial garb at the United Nations. And so he's thinking, you know, am I wasting my time here as Black Panther when I should be focusing on my duties as T'Challa, the Prince of Wakanda, Mm -hmm. the King of Wakanda? Um, I keep saying Prince because I think of him as son of T'Chaka, but he is the king. He's the sovereign king. Mm -hmm. Um, but it is interesting that in a way he is kind of like Batman and that part of what defines him is the tragic death of his father. Mm -hmm. So anyway, this just kind of keeps going on until he decides to walk. And we're going to talk more about that, uh, next week when we talk about jungle action. So, now, mysteriously, by this point, he's actually gained his full face mask back again. (laughs) I mean, it's like they went, okay, we've had five, six issues, people know he's black, we can actually give him the full face mask back. Someone sewed it back together for him. Now, now, it's funny, but, I mean, keep in mind that we're talking about more than a decade of later, the first miniseries ever, Contest of Champions... They had two different colorists, and they, you know, did these eye holes that would show eye color, and one of the colorists colored him Caucasian. Yeah. So, I mean, clearly not everybody got the message. No, apparently they needed to cut off his mask. Right. Um, Now, I, I will mention briefly, you know, as we head towards 52... Uh, or 62, so 11 issues, not 10, sorry. So over this 11-issue run, it wasn't particularly spectacular membership in the Avengers, but the Avengers are the legendary team of the Marvel Universe, the Justice League of the Marvel Universe, and we did have firmly established that he was an Avenger, and he was leaving because Wakanda needed him, uh, not because he had any sort of a noble run. Now, in later years, for example, in modern, some recent incarnations of the Avengers that happened around the movie, he became the explicit team leader. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and has had amusing exchanges with Iron Man about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so this evolved as well. 
Now, of course, in the course of the storyline, he basically ends up back in Wakanda with the Avengers, and it's impressed upon him how much he needs to stay in Wakanda, that he doesn't know what's been happening. And in fact, we get to meet, for the first time, Wakabi. Who, Wakabi! Wakabi! I miss Wakabi! Um, and T'Challa's upset because Wakabi and some of the other security men have become essentially assassins. And we find out that M'Baku is basically tried to take charge of Wakanda. M'Baku, also known as the Man-Ape. So T'Challa goes to face down M'Baku and the Avengers are invited as guests. But of course, here we find this sort of contradictory scene because the Avengers, who... T'Challa was saying before, he couldn't even tell them where Wakanda was, but now they're hanging out with him there, uh, have been poisoned and drugged. The writing's a little questionable because, you know, we do have the Vision here, who's an android, who the drugs seem to affect, even though just a few issues before, we had T'Challa zapping him with a solar ray to recharge him because he's a synthesoid and doesn't use food and stuff. Um, and yet he can still be drugged. Yeah, the, the writing was not perfectly consistent. And we see, drawn just like Jack Kirby did, the Great Panther statue again. Mm -hmm. uh, except now Waka, uh, M'Baku is saying he's going to destroy it to have his ape statue put up. So they fight, of course, all that happens. And it's impressed upon T'Challa that his security forces have been compromised. turned into compromised. Uh, even his loyal friend uh, Wakabi is part of this, probably because he's just serving Wakanda, and Wakanda has been kind of taken over by Mbaku. I'm wondering where these cosmic wave transmitters were, and why nobody updated T'Challa about all this. Mm-hmm. Um, Apparently, people forgot to message the king. Right. It's all very dubious, but. By the end of it, you know, T'Challa has put an end to the fight. But we don't see the absolute decision at this point to return to Wakanda full-time. That will happen later on. And we'll pick that up in Jungle Action number five. I do want to mention, however, in passing, one thing that has changed during this Avengers run, and one way in which Roy Thomas... Uh, affected the iconic image of T'Challa. I mentioned T'Challa was recharging the vision with solar rays. He was explaining to other Avengers how that was being done. He was operating the machinery. Mm -hmm. We also see them flying a Quinjet of T'Challa's design. Mm -hmm. So remember, we had this conversation earlier about under Jack Kirby and Stan Lee, the Wakandans had bought this technology, but they didn't really master it themselves. They had made it themselves. But now we have T'Challa cast as an engineer, an inventor. He gets technology. He is a technocrat, in a sense, mm -hmm. uh, uh, in that he can manages technology. So, and this becomes an iconic part of T'Challa until the movies, where he just becomes a frat boy. Um, he wasn't that bad. He was a frat boy. Okay, that's not fair. He was a noble frat boy. Okay, I, I, I can deal with that. Um, while T'Challa in the comics from Roy Thomas's Avengers run onward was a genius. Mm -hmm. And that is a big difference. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we find is that, of course, many of the iconic figures in the Marvel Universe are geniuses. I mean, if you look at the defining figures of the Marvel Universe, um, what sets them apart is often their intellect. Reed Richards, he can stretch, but his mind is the most powerful thing about him, really. Uh, under many writers, yeah, Peter Parker has lots of Spider-Man abilities, but it's actually his mind that often sets them apart, his wits. Yeah, he's always betrayed as extremely book smart. Right. Um, Dr. Stephen Strange, he's a scholar, a surgeon, who learns magic much like you would any other discipline. Mm -hmm. So, and in fact, in later Marvel comics, when it turns out that there's a secret group of the super smart of the Marvel universe 
who have kind of been manipulating events to their end, T'Challa is one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't like that going away in the movie. No, I was very unhappy with that too. And, and to be clear, I actually liked the movie. The actor that portrayed T'Challa was great. Mm-hmm. I thought they got his nobility and a lot of his traits perfect. I just, and, and I'm not, what I think they did was they said, we need to reserve that intelligence and technology aspect for Shuri, and that means T'Challa can't have it. I don't what, see why both couldn't have it. Yeah, what they should have done was made them both extremely intelligent. And they could have had Shuri be the active inventor, and he still didn't understand what she was doing because he wasn't the one doing it. Mm-hmm. But that didn't mean they had to take that away from him. Mm-hmm. That was a mistake on the writer's part, in my opinion. Yeah, I think they took a lazy, easy road out. So that does bring us up to the end of the Avengers run. We're going to talk about one more issue of the Avengers because when he actually leaves the Avengers is in a later issue. But that's reprinted as part of the Jungle Action Run number five. And we'll talk all about that then. A lot to talk about there, including Don McGregor uh, and how his initially leaving Marvel was linked to Black Panther in many ways. Ooh. So join us then. Bye.